0: Hello everyone, and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben.
1: And I'm Sarah.
0: Thank you for listening to us today. Sarah, how are you doing?
1: Doing all right. We have our appointments to get vaxxed.
0: Yes, that is very true. We are getting vaccinated this week. By the time you are hearing this, we will have our first dose of our COVID vaccines, which we are super, super excited about.
1: Yes, I think the last time we recorded it hadn't even been opened up to our age group yet. Yeah, yeah. So it's like moved very fast and we were very hopeful.
0: Yes. Um, I honestly didn't think that we would get first doses until like June or July even. Um, I had kind of given up on the idea of being vaccinated in time for like your birthday, which is at the end of May, or even my birthday, which is at the end of June. Um, So this is really really exciting for Mm -hmm. us and for all our friends who are getting vaccinated as well just the idea of being able to like see people and spend time with them
1: honestly it's going to be such a relief just having that layer of protection
0: oh yeah just uh, it's just it feels like finally we might be heading towards the end of this there are still
1: many more steps to go
0: yes but at least
1: this is finally a step we can take
0: yeah and obviously like there are many other challenges to face in life that are, and you know, in death <laughs> that, uh, Sarah and I, uh, have coming up in our lives. But like with the pandemic sort of taken care of, it's just like, it's just like one less thing,
1: you yeah. know? Like I said, it's going to be such a, a relief. And obviously like, it's not a hundred percent. There's still a lot of things going on out there. A lot of things with the pandemic itself going on out there. But it's just nice yeah. to have finally have something go our way. And just, I'm hoping it's not a Charlie Brown and Lucy pulling the ball situation.
0: Yeah, for sure. So that's, that's exciting.
1: Yeah. I am also excited for tonight's movie.
0: We have a big deal movie tonight. We have a movie that I feel like people have probably been waiting for for a long time. It's one of those movies where it's like, what can we even say
1: about this movie that hasn't already been said exactly it will be interesting this will either be very long or a very short episode <laughs> right yeah yeah
0: it'll be interesting to see how it goes so this week we are watching the infamous plan nine from outer space space space, space. uh directed by edward D. Wood jr
1: when did we last see ed
0: So, the last time we saw Edward D. Wood Jr., it was for his sci fi horror throwback picture, Bride of the Monster, starring Bella Lugosi. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that film had been a financial success for its largest investor, Samuel Z. Arkoff, who then used his profits to go off and fund the creation of AIP. Uh, But AIP had found their own directing wunderkind in uh Roger Corman and sort of left Ed Wood behind. Ouch. Yeah. It's sort of interesting talking about the making of this movie and the behind the scenes of this movie because it feels like if you know Plan Nine from Outer Space, you already know all the behind the scenes story of it. Like it just feels like watching the movie, being exposed to the movie goes like hand in hand with just like knowing all of the like behind the scenes trivia because it's all so like infamous certainly if you've seen the tim burton movie ed wood like Mm -hmm. a lot of what i'm about to talk about will be very very familiar to you um but if you are not familiar with ed wood or that movie or plan nine from outer space buckle in yeah yeah
1: because it is wild
0: yeah that yeah exactly um i feel like What's interesting is that Plan 9 from Outer Space, its claim to fame, is that for a long time it sort of bore the title worst film ever made, Mm -hmm. similar to how like Citizen Kane has borne the title best film ever made. And while like that is arguable in both cases, Mm -hmm. um, certainly I don't think Plan 9 is the worst movie ever made. I think...
1: I mean, according to the list, we'll see when we rank it. (laughs) Sure,
0: absolutely, absolutely. I think the thing about Plan 9 that has given it its longevity is it's the worst film ever made that's still entertaining to watch. Sure, Like, it's fun to watch Plan 9 and, like, riff on it and stuff in a way that truly bad movies aren't actually fun to watch. Mm -hmm. Um, But the other thing about Plan 9 that's sort of interesting is that Within the last like 20 years, I feel like its notoriety has almost faded a little bit um, because there have been many other movies that have like risen up to claim its title. Like I feel like Like younger...
1: purposefully claim its title. Purposely
0: almost. Yeah, for sure. Like Sharknado. Yeah. um, Birdemic. Mm -hmm. But I feel like for younger generations, like the movie that you would think of now is The Room.
1: Oh, yeah. I didn't think of that because it's not trying to be a horror movie. Right. It's a horror to sit through. (laughs) I don't understand the let's watch this because it's funny. It it bothers me so much.
0: Yeah, I find Plan 9 fun to watch. I don't find The Room fun to watch. But it is, I think, a movie that has sort of taken Plan 9's place in, Mm -hmm. like, pop culture awareness.
1: And it's interesting because both have earnestness behind them like they're both trying to be a real movie yes they're not trying to be plan nine yeah you know like pandemic
0: so after bride of the monster uh edward's next project was writing the script for an exploitation film about teen girl juvenile delinquents uh, which starred playboy model jean moorhead and was called the violent years okay Uh, Wood only wrote the script for that movie. He did not produce or direct it. Um, But that movie only cost $38,000. So it ended up being the most financially successful film that Wood had any creative involvement in. Oh. Not like financially successful for Wood. Just like in general. Yeah. (laughs) In terms of box office over budget. Following the death of his friend Bella Lugosi in august of 1956 wood was looking to write a movie that would let him utilize the footage he had shot of legosi walking around a few different locations in la in his dracula cape he had footage of bella legosi walking in front of tor johnson's house and walking around in front of his apartment and walking around in a suburban cemetery Mm -hmm. just opening and closing his Dracula cape, just kind of being spooky, right? So he had taken these test footage shots before Legosi had passed. So using these scenes and kind of writing a script around them enabled Wood to not only make what he considered to be a loving tribute to Legosi, uh, but also would enable him to market his new project as bella lugosi's final film sure um like
1: i guess technically
0: right uh as a way to like attract investors and actors to the project like everyone knew lugosi was dead but it was like you know i have the last footage he ever shot and he would certainly hype that up and hype up lugosi's involvement in the movie and hype him up as like the star of the film to a degree that um sort of belied the fact that the footage of Legosi he has is very slight.
1: I feel like it's almost to a point where it feels like he passes that threshold into being a little exploitative.
0: Absolutely. And that's
1: definitely a conversation around plan nine. Yeah.
0: Because there's no dialogue in any of this Legosi footage. There's no there's like nothing going on. Like at least Wood shot it himself and it's not footage he like found like in a dumpster somewhere or something (laughs) like it is. yeah. Yeah, it's like at least legitimately footage he shot of Lugosi. But yeah, it's it's a conversation worth having. You talked about the earnestness of the movie and how it's trying to be something and certainly Wood's script. It's for like an epic alien invasion movie that should maybe be on the scale of something like
1: War of the Worlds. Or
0: like the day the Earth Stood Still. Yeah. Um, and it combines 1950s alien sci-fi tropes that we've now seen many, many times, but it combines them with Wood's True Love, which is 1940s gothic horror universal stuff. So it's a premise about aliens invading that is also about like zombies coming from the dead in like a graveyard to like haunt people yeah and this like odd mix of everything that wood was interested in uh except for some of his like sexual fetishes which aren't (laughs) (laughs) yes aren't they aren't as present in this movie as they are in like bride of the monster or you know obviously glen or glenda yeah Now, to achieve this epic scope that he obviously could never afford... Had envisioned,
1: or and yes, could never
0: afford. uh, Wood planned to make extensive use of military stock footage that he had access to. So there's a lot of, you know, stock footage of like World War II shit that uh, Wood uses here. Ultimately, the budget that Wood managed to raise from investors for this movie... Was $60,000.
1: That's not
0: bad. It's about what um, Roger Corman's like second movie cost. It's about like the level of like Roger Corman's Fast and the Furious.
1: Yeah, honestly, not bad.
0: It is $10,000 less than Bride of the Monster had.
1: Yeah, but that was through an actual studio.
0: Mm. Wood got his funding for the movie from the Southern Baptist Convention, which is today the second largest Christian denomination in the United States.
1: Interesting. I did not know that.
0: Yeah, the first is the Catholic Church.
1: It's not that I did not know that it was the second largest. It was more of its relationship to this movie. (laughs) Sure.
0: You see, Baptist minister J. Edward Reynolds wanted to produce a biopic of influential American evangelist Billy Sunday and would somehow manage to convince Reynolds that what would make the most sense would be to bankroll like a popular genre film, something that you could show in like drive-thrus, get the teens coming to make a bunch of easy, quick money off of, and then use that to earn the money to make the religious movie.
1: He's not wrong.
0: Sure. Although if you have the money to make yes. the first movie, you it, that does mean that you do have the money to just make the Billy Sunday movie. Yes. Yeah. Uh,
1: but he, it, it, it is a strategy we have seen from many people like Roger Corman.
0: Yes. It makes sense on paper. So he convinced them to produce his sci-fi horror movie, his sci-fi horror epic, which he titled... Grave Robbers from Outer Space. Reynolds and his fellow uh, Baptist minister, Hugh Thomas, uh, became the film's producers. They also appear in the film in cameo roles as gravediggers, while another Baptist minister uh, from their denomination, Lynn Lemon, uh, plays a minister in the film. Now, one of the requirements for securing funding from the Baptist Church was that the cast and crew of the film be baptized, which was certainly not a genuine conversion mm-hmm. for many of the participants.
1: Yeah, why would it?
0: Yeah, a lot of people just getting baptized just to get a movie made,
1: mm-hmm.
0: not out of, say, a genuine adoption of the Baptist Church into their hearts and lives.
1: Uh, it's. I'm sure it's not the first nor the last time that people will just do something to get a movie made. Correct.
0: Uh, <laughs> I feel like you could file everything that gets done to make a movie under that. Um, do something that they don't believe in. Still. Yep. Uh, that being said, the film's star, actor Gregory Walcott, did not have to go through with this process uh, because he was already, in fact, a member of the Baptist church. He was a experienced minor actor in Hollywood. Um, The kind of guy who, you know, maybe never played the lead, but would be like Sheriff Williams and like down in the midpoint of the cast somewhere, right? And uh, he believed that the script was the worst he had ever read, but he agreed to be in the movie as a favor to his minister, who was the film's producer, J. Edward Reynolds.
1: Oh my goodness.
0: He had a long career on either side of making this movie in uh, film and television. And uh, for a long time, he really regretted that this movie was what he was most associated with.
1: Man, you just lean into it. You have no control over these things. Yeah, he had made some peace with it
0: uh, by the time he cameoed in Tim Burton's Ed Wood movie in 1994. And in 2000, he even said, like, you can't really control what you get remembered for, and it's good to be remembered for something.
1: Exactly.
0: He passed away in 2015. Playing his wife is actress Mona McKinnon, uh, who had been Ed Wood's girlfriend, Dolores Fuller's roommate. (laughs) Now, Fuller and Wood had broken up after the production of Bride of the Monster um, for a lot of reasons. Primarily Wood's alcoholism secondarily because he wrote the lead role in that movie for her and then recast her with a different actress who promised to give him money to make that movie and then never came through with that money and Fuller got a role as like a one-line secretary. But the relationship had introduced Wood to Mona McKinnon, so she got to be cast in this film. Uh, since breaking up with Fuller, Wood had married actress Norma McCarty, who also appears in this movie as an airline stewardess. Okay. By the time this movie was completed, however, uh, McCarty and Wood had split up uh, with McCarty kicking Wood out of their house um, after discovering that he was a crossdresser. After He didn't tell her? No. Uh, so after discovering some of her clothes missing, uh, she, she sort of looked into it and uh, she believed that he was a danger to her children from a previous marriage and kicked him out of the house. Uh, She is not actually included in the Tim Burton movie, which goes right from Dolores Fuller to Wood's final wife, Kathy O'Hara, brings her kind of into his life a little earlier, but uh, he wouldn't actually marry Kathy O'Hara until 1959. Now, in addition to appearing in this film as a stewardess, uh, McCarty has another uh, legacy on this film, which is that... um, In order to integrate Bella Lugosi's character, who is completely alone in all of his footage, uh, into the rest of the movie, uh, Wood needed like a body double to play his character. And so McCarty's chiropractor, Dr. Tom Mason, was brought in. Uh, Mason was taller than Lugosi and bore very little physical resemblance to him. Uh, So he spends all of his time in this movie, sort of hunching over and then covering the lower half of his face with his cape. The film's cast includes a number of Ed Wood standbys. Uh, Duke Moore appears here in his first film and would go on to a career in which he only appeared in Ed Wood movies. While Conrad Brooks uh, had previously appeared in Glen or Glenda, Jailbait and Bride of the Monster. Another very recognizable face is that of Swedish wrestler Tor Johnson, who'd appeared in Bride of the Monster as Lobo, and who we last saw in The Black Sleep. This time, he plays a role where, for better or worse, uh, he gets lines. Moving up in the world. Then there's Paul Marco, who is reprising his role as police patrolman Kelton uh, from Bride of the Monster, uh,
1: oh, he has like a, there's like the Kelton trilogy.
0: Yeah, it's, it's Bride of the Monster, this film, and then the movie Night of the Ghouls. Marco had come into Ed Wood's circle because uh, Ed Wood was a fan of a television program called Criswell Predicts, where the amazing Criswell on national TV had predicted that Paul Marco would become a major movie star. And so as a fan of Criswell's, uh, would cast Marco in Bride of the Monster. Now, when it came time to make this film, Wood had the difficulty of needing to like tie together all the disparate elements of the plot. The Bell Lugosi footage with the rest of the movie, the horror elements with the sci-fi elements, both of those things with like the cop stuff. (laughs) Um, So Wood decided to utilize Criswell as a narrator playing himself. Criswell was born Jerron Criswell Koenig in 1907. However, he was also known as Jerron Criswell King, Jerron King Criswell, Charles Criswell King, and most commonly as the Amazing Criswell. (laughs) He was a radio announcer and news broadcaster. Uh, but he sort of rose to fame beginning in the late 1940s and early 1950s when he would buy time on local LA TV to run infomercials for Criswell Family Vitamins. In order to sort of spice up the infomercials, he began opening them with a segment called Criswell Predicts, where he claimed to be a psychic and would give sort of very offbeat predictions about the future, often involving great doom for cities in the United States and various public figures. Criswell sort of developed a persona around this character that he began to like adopt. One of these things where like the person's character version of themselves and their real self start to like blur. Yeah. He based his persona on the idea that he had grown up the son of a mortician, which (laughs) might be true. This is one of those like cases where, It's hard to know what's true about Criswell and what's not because, you know, he's the source we have to go on and he was creating a persona about himself, right? Sure. Uh, But the idea was that because he was the son of a mortician, um, he claimed that he slept in a coffin because it was more comfortable. So he would like get out of a coffin at the start of these TV segments (laughs) and then go to a desk and then read his predictions. Yeah,
1: I can see why Wood would be a fan of him. Yeah.
0: The segment became very, very popular. Uh, Like this segment of these like, you know, late night infomercials. Um, And it led to Criswell becoming friends with many Hollywood celebs. uh, People like Mae West, who were like maybe a little over the hill. Um, Criswell became her official psychic and predicted that she would become president of the United States. And this led to Criswell making appearances at parties and then on like variety shows and finally getting a nationally syndicated newspaper column and finally a Criswell Predicts television show.
1: That's ridiculous.
0: Yeah. Criswell shared a studio with a fellow local LA TV personality named Myla Nurmi, mm. aka Vampira. Yeah. Born in 1922, Nurmi had been a showgirl and pinup model before developing the character of Vampyra. Uh, she was a fan of Charles Adams' character Morticia uh, long before there was Adams' family TV shows or movies or anything like that, back when it was just a single-panel cartoon in The New Yorker. So what happened was Nurmi attended a Halloween party as Morticia in 1953 and caught the attention of a local TV producer named Hunt Stromberg Jr., who then created the Vampyra show for Nermy where she would introduce and lightly mock old horror movies. The show aired at midnight and it was the first of its kind in terms of like the idea of having a horror host. Yeah. Show these old movies. Nermy developed the Vampira character into something that would be, like, unique from Morticia, even though the, the appearance is very clearly coming from it. But Vampira was characterized as, like, a sexy, glamorous, single vampire uh, who had, like, a killer wit and was clearly very, like, romantically active.
1: <laughs> That's one way to put it.
0: This basic, like, horror host concept would become widely copied thereafter and become a long-standing, like local TV mainstay,
1: even um, to today with Svengoolie.
0: Yes, exactly. I think Svengoolie is one of like the few that's still going today, just because that whole idea of like showing old public domain movies on late night TV to like fill an hour is like kind of passe in today's world. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the Vampirus Show ran from 1953 to 1956. Um, and Nurmi would appear around LA in character as Vampyra to promote the show. Uh, she did the hair, makeup, and costume all herself, and she actually owned the rights to the character.
1: Oh, that's great.
0: She would appear at events in and around LA. Um, as publicity for the show, she ran for mayor of LA on a platform of undead issues. <laughs> uh, she would appear on variety shows. She generally became quite well known. So through Criswell, Ed Wood had met Paul Marco, and then Vampira shared a studio with Criswell. And around the time of the making of Bride of the Monster, Paul Marco had been dating Myla nurmi a.k.a. Vampira. so... Like through his social circles, Wood gained access to both of these TV personalities at a time when their respective shows had gone off the air.
1: So, this is the only place where people will, will find them. I can see why this is also like a, like his producer mind is turning here. Yeah. And, and calculating, like, oh, this will get people into the theater.
0: Yeah. It is partially a problem in that they're both local LA tv personalities and wood's not really thinking of the fact that like outside of his social circles these people aren't as famous as maybe he thinks they are um but he decided to use them in the movie
1: yeah his instinct is right just as we've seen sometimes his execution Mm. needs some work
0: so he designed the film to open with a criswell predicts segment like just as if it was Criswell's own show. Um, Although the prediction aspect gets a bit confused because the narration that Ed Wood wrote to like explain the plot of the movie um, took its main inspiration from the currently running and popular Dragnet TV series, where the stories on the TV show would be presented as like true events that had actually happened and then had like the names changed to protect the innocent. So the story is both a prediction. Of something that's going to happen in the future, and a recounting of true events that have really happened.
1: Who's to say, Ben? I guess Criswell.
0: Right. So after Paul Marco convinced Mila Nermi to be part of the movie, uh, Wood wanted to bill her as Vampira, and like essentially just play Vampira. Um, like that's what he wanted. He didn't want Mila Nermi the actress. He wanted Vampira the character. Uh, Nurmi agreed to do the movie for $200, if she could play the role mute, as she hated Edwards' dialogue and didn't believe it matched the vampira persona that she was trying to protect as her copyright. Sure. Uh, she would again do her own hair and makeup and costume, and she would do this at home, and then take the bus to the studios where they were shooting.
1: <laughs> take the bus? Oh no. <laughs>
0: Uh, Paul Marco also introduced Wood to his roommate, house guest, it's a little unclear, uh, wealthy gay socialite John Cabell Bunny Breckenridge, Born in 1903 in Paris, France, Bunny Breckinridge was born to a wealthy American family of a very long history. Like, he was the, like, great, 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 great great grandchild of, like, a U.S. Attorney General, and, like...
1: He comes from old money.
0: Right. And at a time where it was very unusual to be so, uh, Bunny Breckenridge was openly gay.
1: Oh, good for him.
0: Uh, in the 1920s, he performed as a drag queen in burlesque shows in Paris. Uh, he would do Shakespeare in drag. He married the daughter of a French count, and then they had a daughter... And then they divorced two years later. Uh, As sex reassignment surgery became more publicized after Christine Jorgensen in 1952, Breckenridge began expressing a desire to transition. Okay. Uh, Very, like, loudly expressed this desire. Uh, He was arrested numerous times uh, for his lifestyle uh, in, like, raids and things by police. Um, But due to his uh, wealth and family connections, he would often get out of jail free with charges dropped. At the time of being introduced to Ed Wood, um, he and his personal secretary, Dean Demering, uh, were living at Paul Marco's house as roommates or house guests or something. It's sort of unclear why, because Paul Marco was a struggling actor who like was only appearing in like Ed Wood movies and had, you know, a very modest little home. And Bunny Breckenridge was an independently wealthy socialite.
1: Listen, Bunny wants to live like the common people, ben. Right.
0: Yes. Now, Demering, uh, Breckenridge's secretary, um, was in fact Breckenridge's lover. And so in 1954, Breckenridge announced that he was going to travel out of the country to get his sex change operation so that he could marry Demering. Uh, his granddaughter supported his efforts and uh, things were looking good. Uh, until a car crash on the way to Mexico to see the sex change surgeon uh, scuttled the plan and Breckenridge ended up having to come back to the US and then like didn't pursue it again. Sure. And there was some controversy in the LA LGBT community, people of the period who said that like he had never really been serious about transitioning in the first place, that it was like, a publicity stunt or just kind of something he was doing for like attention. Um, and that like, you know, the like car crash was like a thing that he made up to cover the fact of why he didn't end up doing it and things like this. But this is kind of like disputed. Uh, this is one of the reasons why like I'm using male pronouns for Breckenridge because I couldn't find any good consensus on like, how he actually viewed his own gender identity
1: sure there's no like letters or like journals or anything yeah
0: i couldn't really find anything i there was websites that would use female pronouns out of the idea that like while he was like legally male and presented as male in like public um that he would present as female in private But then there was all this stuff from like notable people in the LA LGBT community at the time that were kind of like, this guy's full of shit and isn't legit Mm -hmm. about being trans and like, I don't know. So it's been like (laughs) 70 years. So it's all a little bit confused, uh, which is why I'm using male pronouns. Now, due to Breckenridge's flamboyant personality and previous stage experience, would cast him as the alien leader in the film, while his secretary slash lover, Demering, was cast as an airplane co-pilot. Okay. So basically, like, if you know someone, they're in the movie, was like the rule about who gets cast.
1: Yeah. First, they have to be baptized, of course. (laughs) Yes.
0: Everyone had to be baptized. After the release of the film, Breckenridge was convicted of sex perversion and committed to a state hospital for the criminally insane, uh, where he spent one year and then retired to a home he kept in San Francisco, which he then opened to the hippie and gay scene in the 1960s and just sort of ran as like a an open house where he would like hold court and tell these young gays about like who in Hollywood was gay in the 30s and like just sort of dish goss. <laughs> he gave author Gore Vidal permission to write a book about his life uh, which eventually morphed into the fictional novel Myra Breckinridge, uh, which was like the first major American novel with a transgender protagonist, uh, which then became one of the actual worst movies of all time, uh, starring Raquel Welch. Um, and Breckinridge eventually passed away at age
1: 93 in 1996. 93, that's a really good run. Mm-hmm. Another familiar face in this fr- film
0: for us is lyle talbot who famously never turned down a role he appears in this movie as an army general and he had previously appeared in edward's films jailbait and glennar glenda uh, he was also the first live action commissioner gordon in the 1940s batman serials and the first live action lex Luthor in the 1940s superman serials he also narrated mesa of lost women
1: ah yes which is uh this week's patreon bonus audio oh.
0: Radio announcer Dudley Manlove, who, best as I could find out, was straight, plays the alien Eros, uh, while the alien Tana, his uh, partner, uh, is played by actress Joanna Lee, who would go on to be a writer for the Flintstones and create the character of the Great Gazoo. I hated the Great Gazoo. Everybody hates the Great Gazoo. The film was shot by Wood's regular cinematographer, the colorblind William C. Thompson, who shot sex maniac in 1934 shot Edwards, Glenn or Glenda, jailbait, bride of the monster. He also shot dementia and the violent years Wood used a soundstage called quality studios, <laughs> uh, where they used, um, fake turf, uh, like paper grass in like these like carpets yeah. that were like, you'd lay down that would kind of get like all bunched up and stuff. I uh, yeah. use that for grass. They had cardboard, tombstones and a black psych uh, to represent a graveyard at night and while the film's flying saucers have often been derided as either being pie plates or hubcaps research has shown that they are in fact a toy flying saucer model kit that had been on the market since 1952
1: listen edward doesn't have many standards but he has enough standards to not use pie plates
0: yeah Tor Johnson's son, Carl Johnson, was an officer in the San Fernando Police Department, which gained the production access to authentic police uniforms and police cars.
1: (laughs) Under the table, of course. Yes.
0: Now, it is actually impossible to show this film in a correct aspect ratio.
1: I don't understand. Well, you see,
0: Wood shot the movie in what's called Open Mat, meaning that the negative is in 1.33 to 1, which we call full screen, Uh, but it was intended to be projected at 1.85 to 1, or what we call widescreen. Because of this, boom mics, boom shadows, other filmmaking equipment, edges of sets, uh, scripts lying around, and all kinds of other errors are visible in frame. But this is because they were supposed to be matted out. Yeah. He knew... like. Like Ed Wood was not the best filmmaker in the world, but he was not so incompetent that he was just leaving like scripts and boom mics and shit lying in frame, you know, or or the lights overhead the set or whatever to be seen. He thought the the movie's going to be shown matted and you won't see these things. However, the test footage that Wood had shot of Bella Lugosi had been shot one point three three to one, and all of the military stock footage that Wood was using was 1.33 to 1 so the thing about the movie is you can either crop it to 185 to 1 and then all the mistakes disappear but if you do that then all of the stock footage becomes like way too overly cropped and yeah. you can't see what he's supposed to be seeing or like the top of Bella's head is cut off or whatever but if you show it all full frame then you get all these mistakes
1: i feel like this is something they wouldn't have realized until they got into the editing room yeah and i can just imagine the like stone that drops in your belly once you realize that
0: so on tv and home video the film has always been shown full frame uh to the point where these mistakes are now considered to be like an intrinsic part of the movie and these are often, you know, listed among the reasons why this is like the worst film ever made and stuff. But it is worth stating that, like, would thought those things wouldn't be visible in the movie. Yeah. So Grave Robbers from Outer Space was shot in November of 1956 and it had its premiere under that title at the Carlton Theater in Los Angeles on March 15th, 1957. And this is the date we are sort of using for scream scene chronology purposes as the release date of this film. Okay. Uh, however, uh, that was just like a one-time premiere screening.
1: For friends and family. Right, yeah.
0: <laughs> and and whoever, you know, the investors... And your neighbor
1: and yeah, the investor's dog. Yeah, yeah, whoever
0: the investors can rile up to go see this, right? The film's name uh, concerned the Baptist Church as being potentially sacrilegious. I had a feeling. So... A few alternate titles were bandied about. Uh, One that was considered was Flying Saucers Over Hollywood, which is a, like, newspaper headline that shows up in the movie, Um, but eventually would change the film's title to Plan 9 from Outer Space. Unfortunately, the new title was much less descriptive of the content. Like, what the hell does that mean? Yeah. Uh, Which led to trouble selling the film to a distributor. It would take a year before the movie was bought by Distributors Corporation of America, who planned to release the film in spring of 1958. But then, the Distributors Corporation of America went under.
1: Oh my god. And
0: its assets were bought out by Valiant Pictures, which finally released Plan 9 from Outer Space to theaters on July 22nd, 1959.
1: Wow. That, uh, the church investors must be like pretty pissed
0: there is to this day talk that the real reason the title was changed was because wood thought if he released it under a different title the baptist church wouldn't realize the movie was finally in theaters and wouldn't come looking for their money
1: (laughs) i don't think he's quite that devious
0: speaking of the quote wide release, unquote, of this movie. It is estimated that only 20 release prints were ultimately struck from the negative. And the film was on TV as early as 1961, being shown probably on the same kind of late-night horror host shows that Vampyra had inspired.
1: The circle of life, Ben. Right.
0: (laughs) And Plan 9 from Outer Space likely would have, like, languished in obscurity forever the same as, like, Robot Monster and Corpse Vanishes and and stuff like that if it was not for the release of the book The Golden Turkey Awards in 1980, written by film critic brothers Harry and Michael Medved, uh, two years after Edward's death um, of alcoholism as a, a homeless person. The Medveds, in their book, named Plan 9 the worst film of all time. And it was this sort of notoriety that led to the by then Public Domain movie uh, finding new life on poor quality VHS tapes, uh, midnight movie screenings, um, sort of adopted as like a camp classic of such notoriety that like by 1994, Tim Burton could make Plan 9 from Outer Space the centerpiece of an Ed Wood biopic, you know, to give you an idea of like how fast the mm-hmm. culture around this movie built up after the release of that book. Yeah. And I think a big part of that was it coming in hand in hand with like home video being a thing that, you know, anyone and their dog could release a VHS of it. Since then it's been adapted to comics, point and click adventure games, and a musical.
1: I can see the musical. I can see the comic. I can't see the point and click game.
0: The plot of the point and click adventure game is that bella lugosi's double tom mason has stolen the original negative of the film and you <laughs> must retrieve it from him
1: is it really yeah that's awesome
0: there have also of course been several low budget remakes because again public domain yeah uh, it's been released on home video many 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 times uh very often in poor quality uh but image entertainment released a dvd in 2000 Uh, But probably the most common release available now is Legend Films 2006 Restoration. Their DVD and Blu-ray includes the original film as well as a colorized version. And it's this colorized version that you're going to find like for rent on like YouTube and other online rental sources because it being colorized makes it copyrightable and thus something that you can charge money for. Um, The black and white version is still public domain. So we've got the black and white version Uh, on our YouTube playlist for free, we're going to be watching the HD copy of the movie, uh, the restored Blu-ray, which I have to say, um, before now I've actually only ever seen this movie on VHS oh, from like a public domain VHS tape, which I think i I might still have in the house somewhere. I might've sold it, but like, this is the, this is going to be the highest quality I've ever seen this movie in
1: awesome so that would go for me as well because the only other time i've seen it is uh you showing it to me on vhs yeah so very fun uh well folks if you would like to watch along and i recommend that you do you can head to screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com to find our youtube playlist you're going to hear a brief musical interlude and when we come back we will discuss plan nine from outer space from 1957 directed by ed wood see you on the other side everybody Thank mm-hmm. you. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Plan 9 from Outer Space, directed by Ed Wood from 1957. Ben, so you've seen this movie before, but never in this high quality. Mm. Uh, What did you think?
0: It was still Plan 9. I I could see more details in the picture, but it was still Plan 9.
1: The smoky fog looked great.
0: Sure. Yeah.
1: Lots of lots of detail there. Yeah. This is probably my second time seeing this movie and yeah, still enjoyed it. You know, I get a little exasperated sometimes with some old terrible movies, but that's not unique to plan nine. Sure.
0: (laughs) Fair enough. But
1: yeah, it's a fun time.
0: It feels like a hard movie to talk about in some ways because like, how do you avoid just sort of like listing off all the various like ways in which it is bad subpar sure as a movie like you know how do you avoid just doing the like CinemaSins counter thing for a movie like this like mm-hmm. this is really the kind of movie that that style of critique was born out of mm-hmm. right like these are the kind of movies that are meant to be riffed on. These are the kind of movies that are meant to have like a blog post where you break down all the things that are dumb and bad about it. Like how many times you can spot the boom mic. Right. Exactly. Or like the lines of dialogue that don't make sense or whatever. Um, That kind of critique isn't meant for like the Godfather or whatever. (laughs) Right. But this movie's been heckled for so long that it's like, where do you even begin? So let's talk about the story. Yeah. Um, which doesn't make sense.
1: Well, listen, we'll talk about that later. As Ben said in the context setting portion of the show, um, there is a framing narrative in plan nine of a, uh, Criswell Predicts segment. Um, and to deform, this film opens with Criswell predicting future events slash, as he continues down the sentence, retelling of events that did happen with changed names and, you know, you have to protect the anonymity of these people um, experiencing future events. It's a little confusing. Mm-hmm. But in any case, here's what happened. We see uh, an old man, who's played by Lugosi, crying at a funeral, and Criswell's narration explains, you know, he's sad because his wife died, and this is her funeral. After the funeral, you know, old man leaves, and we have our two gravediggers coming over to fill the grave. We cut to a commercial flight being piloted by a Jeff Trent um, flying into this town um, when suddenly, flash! There are UFOs swirling around the airplane. After another flash, um, we see down in the cemetery on the ground a woman, who is played by a vampire, emerges and attacks the gravediggers. And I believe the narration explains that this is the old man's wife mm-hmm. we see the old man again um, he is grieving uh, walking out of his house and then uh, off screen he gets hit by a car so he, um, there is a funeral for him and um, attendees leaving that funeral find the bodies of the gravediggers and they call the police the police arrive uh, with an Inspector Clay played by Tor Johnson and mm-hmm. Um, and Clay is like, okay, you guys seem to have it under control here with these grave diggers. I'm going to go walk through the cemetery to do some investigations on my own. Um, and at this point it's night. Well,
0: you can never quite be sure if it's day or night in plan nine from outer space. Uh, time of day seems more attached to location than to chronology.
1: In the cemetery, it is perpetually night.
0: Unless it's a shot of Bella Lugosi, in which case it's daytime. Yes. The street or like country road near the cemetery is always daytime.
1: Plan 9, you see, listener, uh, exists in a truly liminal space. Yes. Between night and day, between past and future.
0: Between good and bad.
1: <laughs> this is true. Many liminal spaces here. While Clay is investigating, uh, we cut to um, that pilot, Jeff. Uh, He's home now with his wife, Paula, and their house backs onto the cemetery like those um, houses that back onto golf courses or something. Mm And he's explaining to his wife, like, yeah, I'm really like mad and frustrated that I saw this UFO, but the army brass are keeping my lips sealed and frustrated by this. Um, when suddenly there's another flash and a zoom of a UFO with the exhaust kind of pushing uh, Jeff and Paula to the ground. And we cut to the cemetery and we see that this happens to the police as well. With the flash that accompanies this. Burst of air, um, we see the old man emerge from his crypt, seemingly alive, holding the cape up to, his, uh, up to his nose.
0: Yeah, this old man was buried in a Dracula cape, much like Bela Lugosi was.
1: <laughs> Next, we see that the revivified old man and revivified vampira converge onto Inspector Clay and uh, kill him. Next, we learn that these UFOs, specifically three of them, are appearing around the world, over Hollywood, over DC, and the Army Chief of Operations and Overseer of UFO Incidences, Edwards, is uh, in charge of blasting off these uh, UFOs with missiles, warding them away from our metropolitan areas. Because these UFOs are damaged, we see them return to a space station where uh, we see these two aliens, a man and a woman. Uh, The man is named Eros, speaking to their commander, uh, who says it's time to go to Plan 9 because the Earthlings are not listening to us. And Plan 9 involves raising the dead.
0: The thing is, is like they've already started Plan 9 by this point. But anyways
1: eros is uh a self-starter ben
0: sure i mean this is the thing with this movie if i start nitpicking we're gonna be here all night
1: with plan nine agreed upon the aliens head back to earth we see jeff leaving for another you know shift i guess like flight mm-hmm. across wherever he flies as mm-hmm. a commercial pilot but he's worried about leaving paula because there's weird things afoot at the cemetery. Now Paula Apollo says, you can leave, like, it's not going to be a problem. I'll lock my doors. It's okay. So Jeff leaves for his flight. shift. For his flight. Yeah. We see the UFOs arrive back to the cemetery with more flashes of light. And this is when Lieutenant Clay arises from his grave. Next uh, once Paula has gone back to has gone to sleep, we see that the undead old man breaks into the house and threatens her. Luckily, Paula is able to escape, even while Vampira and Clay uh, also s- start to surround her. Um, because of this new zombie being brought to life, Eros calls um, his undead minions to the UFO. At this point, we cut back to Edwards, who's been brought into his, like, commanding chief's office to be told some top secret information. You see, uh, we've actually been receiving communications from these UFOs through radio waves. You know, it's a long thing that we've recorded from these aliens, but suffice it to say, uh, they think we're all idiots and we'll blow ourselves up. Um, It's almost like nagging us, like (laughs) the way that um, these aliens are like, you guys are awful and terrible and we're we're trying to be friends, but you're being rude by not talking back to us. And so we're going to conquer you instead because you're idiots. So Edwards is sent to San Fernando, where our cemetery is, because that seems to be the center of all of the activity going on. After the zombies were brought back to the UFO, with Eros headed back to the big alien station in the sky (laughs) to show off these creatures to their high commander, their high ruler, I think is his official title. And this high ruler is like, well, show me one. And he gets shown clay. And it's at this moment that we realize, like, these zombies are controlled through these electro guns. Basically, you know, you have one pointed at the zombie and it will move according to how you want them to move. But in this particular case, uh, the gun malfunctions and Clay almost kills Eros because he's not being told to stop. Now, the High Ruler is pretty impressed with Clay, but not with the rest of the execution of the plan. So he tells Eros, listen, you're only going to get a single ufo because this plan is going too slow so i'm cutting your resources cutting your funding and uh, you only have your one ufo go continue plan nine back on earth uh, we see that edwards and the police are talking with paula and jeff um both about paula's experience um and with jeff's experience with the ufos and as they're talking out on the back patio that again backs under the cemetery, the undead old man comes over and starts to threaten them. And uh, it, it looks like, you know, there's nothing that can stop him until, for some reason, the high ruler said, okay, but destroy the old man zombie to show how powerful we are. And destroying the old man zombie happens right as the old man zombie is about to actually do something, like kill someone. So he gets zapped by a signal from the alien ship and thus ends Lugosi's role in this movie. But because this thing approached from the cemetery and it's the same thing that was threatening Paula, um, everyone heads off to the cemetery to go investigate what's going on. Uh, Now, Officer Kelton, who we've talked about in the context setting, he's in Bride of the Monster uh, and he's in this movie he's been in the movie up to this point as well but he is given guard duty he is to stay with the car with paula and make sure paula stays safe jeff edwards and another police officer head into the cemetery and they find the ufo at that same time eros the alien sends clay to go knock out kelton and kidnap paula
0: i'm not sure if there's like a reason for it other than like it's the end of the movie, so Ed Wood knows that he has to have like the woman in the nightgown being like carried around by the big monster. Maybe. like she's not in a nightgown yet,
1: or anymore. Right.
0: Edwood movies often have things that happen in them because Ed Wood knows that like, this, this is, is what what's happen- supposed to happen yeah. like at this point in a movie like this, but like aren't really well justified within the story itself.
1: Yeah, he's fuzzy on the details. Mm. Anyways, back with Jeff Edwards and a police officer, um, they have found the UFO and so they enter it. And this is when they get to meet Eros, who has been the one who's been leaving the messages. They also meet the lady alien, um, whose name I don't remember. Tana. Don't, Tana. Well, she's not really given much to do, so yeah. it's not important, I guess. Eros kind of repeats what he has said in the previous radio communiques, which are mocking, at best, of the human race. Um, His basic thesis is that humans are going to destroy each other, and in the process, destroy the universe. We've already discovered, like, more powerful weapons, and now the atom bomb, and then the hydrogen bomb... Uh, exploding the air itself, and it won't be long. Not until- how a
0: hydrogen bomb works, by the way, it would, but
1: <laughs> okay. Um, and it won't be long until you humans discover solaronite.
0: Or solomonite, or solarbonite, or solaronite. It, not a single actor says it the same way twice.
1: Um, the idea is that uh, it's like a particle of light from mm-hmm. the sun and we'll harness it and use it to build bombs which will cause a chain reaction to burst every piece of solar night. and it will travel up to the sun like a chain and then out from the sun to all of the universe yeah
0: so the the, the word that um edward wishes he knew was photon mm. which is what a particle of light is Um, But like it's a photon bomb, except that the idea. Everyone knows that those are torpedoes, right? (laughs) (laughs) The idea is like Edward imagines a photon bomb working by like you explode a ray of light and then rays of light are like gasoline. So like the explosion will just travel along the ray of light back to the sun and then blow up the sun, which will then travel out. On all the rays of light that the sun sends out, thus destroying the whole universe. It's not how anything works, but... It's
1: not scientifically sound. No. I don't have a science degree, but I feel confident in my prognosis. Yes. It but anyways, that's that's what Eros and his alien society fears. Jeff, who is a strong man, mm. uh, doesn't take kindly to Eros's, uh mocking... Of the human race.
0: We're stupid. Stupid, stupid.
1: (laughs) So he socks him in the jaw. And this causes a scuffle inside the UFO. Leading to broken equipment and fires. And oh dear, oh dear. Everything's on fire. So the humans escape the UFO. While Tana uh, attempts to get the ship to fly out. um, While everything is on fire. We even see, as it flies across the city, it is literally on fire. <laughs> and as the humans escape, um, we also cut to Kelton and a single cop, who has come up as backup, um, try to take out Clay and rescue Paula. Our two groups of humans meet up uh, just as the UFO explodes in the sky, um, and Clay because he no longer is being controlled by aliens, turns to a skeleton.
0: Yeah, the same way that the old man did.
1: Yeah, and they presume Vampira has <laughs> as well.
0: Yeah, it, we don't see that. No. It's just like, yeah, we'll, we'll just assume that that happened.
1: And uh, and that's the end. Yep. Oh, I should mention that, like, yes, the movie ends right there, but we do get the concluding half of um, Criswell predicts yes, segment. He, yes,
0: Criswell does come back at the end.
1: Yes. I... I don't know where we want to start. I I totally agree with you that it's going to be really easy for us to fall into nitpicking this movie. Yeah. And and if that's what
0: you kind of want, like if you just want to hear about like, oh, in this scene, you can see the boom mic. in this scene, you can see they knock over one of the cardboard tombstones and stuff like you can find that like anywhere online.
1: Yeah. And that, that could be a fun time. But that's not what we're going to do here, I think. I do just want to point out that probably my favorite moment Mm. in plan nine is when Tor Johnson is busting out of his grave because he's underlit and he has these contact lenses in and the face he's doing is really good. I think they've done a little bit of makeup to really deepen some of his like face wrinkles. I was going to say face grooves. They've given him contours. Yeah. (laughs) And it's just like so good. So here's the thing
0: that shot of Tor Johnson rising from his grave, I feel like is such a great summation of Ed Wood's entire career. And the reason for that is like there, as you say, there's a bunch of stuff that's really cool about it. Like he's got the creepy contact lenses. He's got scars on his face that are makeup. He's, you know, looking like a real big giant ghoul. Like the whole reason you cast Tor Johnson, (laughs) they've put a light in the bottom of the grave so that like there's light streaming up and he, his hands reach out to either side of him to grab the like sides of the grave. And then he's hoisting himself up out of the grave and there's like smoke and they're on the set for the graveyard and it looks really cool. And the music is swelling. And then it just becomes really clear that Tor like can't manage to actually like pull himself up. Yeah. He stumbles a little bit all the way. And he's kind of like leaning to one side because like, Um, IRL, like it's pretty physically impossible to like dig your way out of your own grave. Like it's, it's a very difficult thing to try to do. Um, and so then they cut to like another shot where he's like on his feet and rising up and just like the awkward in between stage there is just sort of ellipsed. But I think there's something about like a very cool shot that like is really reaching for like iconic horror imagery status that then sort of gets undercut by, like...
1: The execution. Right,
0: is, like, such a great metaphor for Ed Wood as a whole.
1: Yeah, and I I do want to take issue with something you said earlier of the story not making sense. Because I think, like, besides... Chris, well, why are you giving me that face?
0: Because the story doesn't make sense. But please go on. No, I want to hear this. I want to hear your point.
1: Okay, so not counting the Criswell segment book ending Mm -hmm. I feel like the story beats from scene to scene make sense I feel like I know like why we're here I feel like it makes sense like oh now we're seeing the UFOs go across the the cities and it makes sense for us to then cut to the general who's in charge of blasting them. And then it makes sense for us to follow him to his commander being sent to this town. Sure. Um, it makes sense for, um, I mean, it's a hell of a coincidence, but for the pilot who sees them in the sky to also have a house that backs onto the cemetery, mm-hmm. like, Oh, like if you look at it from like a bird's eye view, it, it's pretty jumbled a lot of weird things going in here the horror and sci-fi don't really mesh beyond the way that the plot is trying to hold them together but like i can understand the thought process i guess
0: so what you're sort of describing is that like the plot makes sense the story does not make sense (laughs) um Um,
1: so i kind of know what you mean uh, in terms of like the difference between plot and story, Mm. but for listeners who might not understand the differences. Right. So like plot
0: is the A to B to C of a movie, right? So as you're describing, it's like an old man and his wife die. Then UFOs show up. Then the old man and his wife come back to life because there's zombies. Then they kill some people that, brings the police into it. They investigate. One of the police dies. He gets brought back to life. A pilot who saw the UFOs in the sky lives near the cemetery. So that connects him to both the UFO plot and the cemetery plot. The generals who fire at the UFOs uh, go to investigate the cemetery, which brings those two things together. Like, the A to B to C works. Story is like the what's and why's Mm -hmm. of what's happening, Right. Like,
1: like the story of Casablanca is of a disillusioned American learning to get back into the fight.
0: Right. Or like the story of, you know, Star Wars is about the rebellion striking its like first major blow against the Empire. Um, the story of this movie doesn't make any sense. Sure. at all. And like, OK, so here's the thing. When you talk about this movie, you know, like I said, it's really hard not to just like talk about all the same sort of things. I first saw this movie years ago, like as a teen. Some of those things don't even like register register anymore, right? Like you watch the movie and you forget like how ridiculous some of the stuff is. Um, The line of dialogue that just killed me the first time I watched this movie and still gets me every time is when the general explains that like one of the transmissions from the aliens that they got like cuts out at a certain point because of atmospheric disturbances in outer space. Mhm. That gets me like every fucking time. Yeah. Um I think what makes Plan 9 special like isn't so much the visible boom mics or the airplane cockpit that is like a cardboard wall and a shower curtain and like some weird like half moon cardboard controls. It's not the bad cemetery set that doesn't match anything of the like Bella Lugosi footage. It's not even the like acting, which is across the board. Terrible. Like just everyone is bad. Um, Everyone's completely flat and lifeless in the acting. Um, It's not like the stage, like blocking or the bizarre editing it's it's the story and it's very specifically the dialogue yeah which is almost beyond parody i think it's not helped by the fact that so many people in this cast are like radio announcers so everyone says the dialogue in like very declarative and broad intonations but edward just like doesn't know what people sound like like Edward writes dialogue that sounds to his ears like movie dialogue. Mm-hmm. And it's like he's trying to find out how to get his story into the rhythms of what movie dialogue sounds like in his mind. It, there's almost a George Lucasness sort of to it, right? In the way that, like, George Lucas wants his dialogue to sound like old movie serial dialogue, right? Because a lot of where Edward's dialogue is really awkward and weird is you know, if you've watched enough movies though, you can tell like oh, he's trying to do like a little comic relief thing there. He's trying to do this or that, but nobody talks like a fucking person. Yeah. And this dialogue is where all the story happens, and it's just like Ed just did not think this through. Like the the longest period of time any line of dialogue in Plan 9 makes sense is for maybe the duration of half a sentence, because usually the second half of the sentence will, like... Go in a completely different direction. And then the next thing someone says to that will be contradictory. Um,
1: I think Ed Wood is a victim of his own enthusiasm. Oh, absolutely. I think... Um, The way that the plot makes sense, as I've kind of pointed out, is because whether it's, like, as you're writing or as you're, like, planning out what will happen next, it's like, oh, yeah, and then it totally makes sense for us to cut to here. And, yeah, it totally makes sense for us to go here. And then you don't realize where you've gone. Well, it's
0: that he's trying to justify the story. Like, Mm -hmm. one thing that's really obvious watching this, if you know anything about filmmaking, is that, like, the story is like reverse engineered from the elements he has on hand. Mm-hmm. Like there's the fact that a lot of the movie is clearly engineered around what pre-existing footage he had, whether that's the Bela Lugosi footage or the military stock footage or what have you. And then it's like, okay, what sets do I have? What shooting locations can I get to?
1: What actors?
0: What actors? Yeah, exactly. Um,
1: but also I think his own, uh passion for horror Mm -hmm. really holds him back here um because he's shoehorning in he's trying to do sci-fi because he knows that that's hot right now right um so he's trying to shoehorn either sci-fi into horror in a way that he doesn't quite understand how to do or shoehorn horror into sci-fi
0: yeah i think the thing that really struck me this time watching it was realizing that the parts of this movie that get the closest to working are the horror parts.
1: Yeah, because that's what he knows. That's what he's passionate about. Right. And also probably what he's most comfortable with.
0: Yeah, like the stuff about where it's Vampyra or Tom Mason or Tor Johnson going around the cemetery with fog, like lunging at people in the night. That stuff's the stuff that like manages to achieve some level of like Atmosphere, like some level of life to it. The sci-fi stuff is where it all falls flat. And it's also where none of it makes any sense. Yeah. And I think you're totally right. It really feels like Wood trying to jump into a trend that he's not as comfortable with. And he's like really fucking late on like, cause he's doing day. The earth stood still, except that he doesn't know why day the earth stood still makes sense like he's he's exactly doing day the earth stood still without understanding Mm -hmm. the story of the day the earth stood still
1: yeah i mean uh we know what is late to trends yes but like okay
0: (laughs) okay so here's here's me trying to break down the story and this will like make it clear what i mean when i say like it does not make sense so we've got these aliens and they're trying to make contact with humanity So they've been contacting the governments of Earth. But the governments of the Earth have been denying their existence, right? And this is supposed to be playing into, like, the 1950s idea of, like, everyone's seeing flying saucers everywhere, but, like, the, you know, Air Force says they don't exist and, like, government cover-ups and, like, all this kind of thing, right? Like, Wood is setting his movie in a world where, which is, I kind of like this, actually. It's a world where, like, Nobody reacts to these flying saucers like they've never heard of a flying saucer before. Everyone's like, yeah, they've been around for years, but the government won't admit they exist. And, like, this leads to some very confusing conversations when government officials have to talk to one another about flying saucers. But Wood's trying to do this, like, cutesy thing where they're, like, pretending that flying saucers are non-existence. And, like, Wood just... Wood can barely write dialogue. So him trying to write dialogue that has, like, double meanings, like, just gets very... (laughs)
1: Very confusing.
0: Yeah. But okay. So we've been denying their existence and that pisses the aliens off. The aliens want us to know that they exist because they're trying to talk to us because they're afraid that we're going to develop the solar bomb and they want to either warn us away from doing so like in day the earth stood still or conquer us. So we don't do it or maybe kill all of us. So we don't do it anyways. That's what they want. But the aliens are also obsessed with doing everything secretly. Yeah. Like it's like it's a failure of on Eros's part if someone has like seen his flying saucer, right? Or like they, they know where he is in the graveyard. Um and then and they're also
1: using the undead to enact their agency. <laughs> right.
0: But like, okay, so that's a great question if you ask like why are they creating zombies to kill humans, right? The reason given is because then they won't be able to deny our power. So you're trying to keep the fact that you aliens exist secret so that no one will know that it is you who are rising zombies to kill humans, which you are doing so that humanity won't be able to deny the power of aliens. Right? Like you yeah. can see how that doesn't make sense, Absolutely. right? And doesn't achieve their stated goal then
1: actively goes against their stated goal
0: right and then like the other thing is like they're only (laughs) like they only make like three fucking zombies in like one small town in uh california which to be fair this is not just a plan nine problem like the alien invasion that's just like hey we killed one person in a small town in california is like a pretty widespread like that's invasion of the body snatchers right but 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 it's still like they have multiple flying saucers that they can just fly around everywhere. Like if you, if you want to be known just like land in the middle of central park or something, my dude, like Klaatu did in day, the earth stood still. And like in day, the earth stood still, like he's trying to impress upon humanity, the power of the aliens so that they know that when he says, Hey, don't make nukes to take him seriously. So the way he does that is he, Stops all electricity everywhere around the planet at the same time, which like nobody can deny and is super impressive. Whereas like these aliens are trying to impress us into not making this solar night bomb that we may or may not develop in the future by doing really secret things in a cemetery at night that nobody knows about that are also like zombies that kill people, which is not a thing that's going to make people think like, Oh, that's must be the aliens. (laughs) Like it. So, and then it's like, towards the end of the movie, Eros is going on about how like they're going to use the zombies to destroy all of us because like, it's too dangerous to keep us alive because we may develop the Solvanite denise. And it's like, if you want to destroy us all, my dude, like just do it then. <laughs> right. Like it's clear, like, like, like fucking Vorschach, like, well, like screaming <laughs> at Dr. Manhattan. Well, it's like Eros at the end of the movie, or maybe it's Tana, but one of them is like, having one of these long Edward tautological sentences about like, you know, you would kill another to protect your own life and uh, your countries will destroy another country to protect their own existence. So uh, why is it so hard for you to believe that our planet would destroy your planet to protect our existence? And it's like, well, maybe because you're not destroying our planet, my guy. Cause like, yeah, if, if you feel you need to destroy us to protect yourselves, okay, but that's not what you're doing.
1: Yeah, you're right. just
0: fucking with us. Right, you're just fucking with us. Like, And then when it's all said and done, right? When we finally learn what their motivations are at the end of the movie. Yeah. Here's the wild thing. And I don't think even Ed Wood realizes this. This movie doesn't resolve its own story. Yeah. It, the movie just stops. Like, the aliens explain their motivation and then Jeff just, like, socks him in the face and then the ufo explodes and the zombies die and it's like well That's wait a how
1: universal movies end then right but
0: it's like wait a minute if the issue of the story is that humanity's too dangerous then the ending needs to be humanity needs to be humanity proving that they can be like trusted like but this somehow, is a horror movie right ben. explaining to the <laughs> aliens like hey you're wrong about us or whatever because if the aliens are going to destroy us because they think we're too dangerous. And we've seen it has been demonstrated in the movie that there are more aliens than just this one flying saucer. Like we've seen their space station, like we know there's a whole civilization out of them. And if they feel this mu- like this strongly about it, like that that we're going to accidentally blow up the entire universe, killing the ones that came to Earth and then being like, "Welp," is not going to convince them that we aren't dangerous. <laughs>
1: Okay, so I think, like, Ed Wood gets really excited about an idea Mm -hmm. and just starts making things and Mm -hmm. doesn't start to really look at the bigger picture and how, like, what it means. Like, if this, then that, sure, that he can kind of follow that.
0: The reason why I think it's really obvious that he's not as comfortable with the sci-fi stuff Mm -hmm. is because the sci-fi stuff is so obviously ripped off right yes it's not like the horror stuff which if you look at this movie or Bride of the Monster that stuff is like remixed it's like Quentin Tarantino it's like you know he he has these favorite movies from when he was a kid and he's gonna remix those elements into something new the alien stuff is just Day the Earth Stood Still and so it doesn't fit because he has like this thing where he's like, the aliens are making the zombies Mm -hmm. and then it comes time for us to learn why. And he's just like dumped in this like speech. If this was a mad scientist movie where it's like, why are you doing this? Dr. Voronoff? You know, it's like, well, because they laughed at me, it would be a stock thing like that. And so here he's just using a stock alien speech.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one thing I noticed with watching this is that Eros is just continually angry at humanity, um, calling us like, you idiots, as if Wood, in an attempt to bring in this 50s sci-fi of Mm. aliens, is trying to map on the 40s sci-fi of Mad Scientist Mm. onto this character and it doesn't really work because he comes off eros that is comes off as very like confused <laughs> and desperate in a weird way and so i have this theory i guess you could call it like a fan theory okay of eros mm. and his backstory
0: mm.
1: eros is a fuck up yeah clearly and he maybe just he believes that humanity's going to do all this and he's been trying to prove it. That's why he's reached plan nine.
0: Right. Yeah. Like and,
1: what was plans one through eight. And right. It's,
0: it's like why the great ruler is like, yeah, I'm cutting your funding, man. He's like, the, exactly. the humans are going to destroy the whole universe. I need to like, make zombies. And the ruler's like, yeah, okay, dude.
1: Yeah. And <laughs> I love, I love the, alien ruler i think he's hilarious there's um one point after clay almost kills eros (laughs) that the ruler will says something like oh well i'm glad you got him under control or something like that and then rolls his eyes and i think it's breckenridge probably rolling his eyes at the dialogue or rolling his eyes at the situation but the implication is that the ruler doesn't give a shit about Eros. Poor Tana has like attached her cart to Eros's horse, so yeah. she's stuck with him and tries to be like, Oh no, like, I think we're really doing the right thing. I think, I think... and I think Eros is just such a fuck up that the, that's why he's so desperate at the end and just goes into these long rants of like, You guys are idiots for not listening to me. Even though, like, as you Your pointed stupid out, minds. as you pointed out, everything Eros is doing. Is counterproductive to his own goals. Yeah,
0: I think there's something to this reading. I mean, obviously, this is not intentional. Wood Wood did not think about this, but I think there's something to this reading because it does help explain one of the, like, bizarrest moments in the movie. This movie is, like, got these very, like, bizarre uh, misogynist moments. Uh, The movie is very, like, dismissive towards women, and it's really hard to figure out if wood is misogynist or if he's just imitating the misogyny in other movies because all of the misogynist dialogue in this movie a lot of it has that same feeling of like trying to imitate dialogue from other movies like where people are just like ah women you know yeah. and it's like are these characters saying this because you believe this or are they saying this? Cause you're like, well, this is what these characters would say at this point in the movie. You know what I mean?
1: I honestly think it's that latter.
0: Yeah. But there's a really bizarre moment where like Eros is giving his impassioned speech about how we're stupid, stupid, stupid. And Tana like comes in like a hype man to like back him up. And she's like, yes, you know, you're, you're, you're going to get yourselves killed. Like we're just trying to defend our country. And Eros fucking like, Backhands her and he's like, "Shut up, wench!" And like, he's like, "Anyways, as I was saying," and they're like, "What the fuck, dude?" And I think that comes off like that fits your theory of Eris as being like very like insecure, where it's like he can't even handle someone like backing him up. It's like, no, this is my moment. Like
1: exactly. The thing that you might notice if you watch other Ed Wood movies, and I'm also thinking of Glenn or Glenda here, is Wood is unintentionally deeply misogynistic and homophobic. Yes. Because, uh, yes, I'm a transvestite. I cross-dress, but I'm not gay, though.
0: Yeah, he's always very quick on that one.
1: And I've seen it in this movie and in even Bride of the Monster where people are just very cruel to women. And it's, I don't think he means it as like, I don't think Ed Wood actually hates women. I honestly do think it's like an imitation thing that you've pointed out of this is what like men in these movies would do. So to make sure that I'm conveying what these men, these manly men would do um, and to prove I'm not gay is to have them say these things. Yeah.
0: He's trying to assert masculinity and it's an element of his character that like the Tim Burton movie is really uncomfortable with because it doesn't like, like one of the things you'll notice about the Tim Burton movie is like based on watching that, it would be hard for you to tell that like Jeff Trent is the lead character of plan nine from outer space, mm-hmm. right? Because the Tim Burton movie wants to talk about Vampira and Tor Johnson and Bella Lugosi and Bunny Breckenridge and Paul Marco and like the fun, kooky oddballs. Uh, and then it just, it's like almost incidental that there's like a square jawed, broad shouldered, like lead actor in both this movie and Bride of the Monster they're kind of like off in the corner because it's almost like you know Tim Burton doesn't want to deal with the fact that like Jeff Trent's character in this movie is so clearly like meant to be Ed Wood's like projection of what like a strong masculine hero is supposed to be where like he's like you know insists that his wife go inside and lock the doors before he leaves the house he kind of treats her like a child she tells him that she gets lonely when he's away and he's like, ah, you crazy kid. Um, yeah. And then, yeah. And then, yeah. At the end, when like the, when Eros is trying to explain like humanity, so stupid, uh, Jeff's like, why I oughta? And like punches him in the face. And it's, it's hard to get a grasp on like who Ed Wood wants us to be sympathizing with at any time, because as confused as Eros's character is and is like ripped off from day. The year stood still his whole deal is there's still something about the way that Eros like rails against humanity for being stupid and violent. That also still feels like Edward speaking authentically, like through this character. Like
1: he, he has a, his own axe to grind.
0: Yeah. He, he feels like he has that inferiority complex and that he thinks humanity is is also very very stupid. I watch this movie and I get the feeling that Ed Wood truly believes in UFOs and thinks that the government is covering them <laughs> up and like that anyone who doesn't believe in them is stupid. It's just I think it's, you know, it's the same thing that makes all of Ed Wood's movies um fascinating, which is like the way that his personal hang-ups and obsessions like intertwine with them. It's just, I think this is the most accessible of his movies because you're not like, wait, wait, why can the monster be defeated by Angora? What? Like, yeah, but yeah, I think the horror stuff here is the strongest stuff in the movie. It's, it's the sci-fi stuff. That's like,
1: that struggles, that
0: struggles a lot. Yeah.
1: Well, before we move on to ranking, I feel like we have to talk about the elephant in the room. Mm Hmm. Is this movie and is Ed Wood exploiting his friendship with Lugosi?
0: Yeah, true. I think that's a reasonable thing to talk
1: about. Um, Because I think it's a complicated yes. I think it's a complicated no.
0: Oh, Oh, this is how we keep things interesting on this show. I mean, the thing is, is like, he's got this footage Mm -hmm. and Lugosi clearly like it's like it's not like he's taking old home movies of Lugosi that like
1: yeah like he's clearly giving direction to Lugosi like now stop at the flower and pick it and yeah you're sad because your wife has died
0: Lugosi's clearly acting like he's clearly acting he's clearly having a good time flirting his cape about and mugging for the camera you know the opening scene at the funeral might be like the most legitimately emotionally affecting footage that ed wood ever shot of anything um like legosi without any dialogue really manages to communicate his morning very very well um so the thing is is like legosi shot that footage knowing it was for something and wood shot that footage knowing it was for something so it's not like he's taking stuff that he's just like acquired underhandedly Sure, And using it, it's not the same feeling as like, oh yeah, here are some deleted scenes from something Legosi did 20 years ago that I'm going to like cobble together. Like it's not Game of Death with Bruce Lee where it's like, I'm going to cobble something together with like, you know, this thing, yeah. right?
1: I kept coming back to Game of Death also of like, why is that so like no that's exploitative oh yeah whereas this feels a bit more like fuzzy I think a big
0: part of it is that Game of Death was a specific thing that Bruce Lee was making that was like meant to be this like magnum opus like expression of his philosophy Mm -hmm. and then it was kind of perverted when the movie was quote-unquote finished without him and they had this like stand-in actor playing him who like was very obviously a stand in game of death two is even worse because it like opens with like the the character faking his own death and they use footage of bruce lee's actual funeral
1: oh fuck yeah like that's people. like that's super
0: exploitative oh right that's God. obviously exploitative right and see like you had an immediate like
1: yeah reaction
0: and so i'm comparing this to like that Right. Where it's like it's not like Woods taking like home movies of Lugosi, like Lugosi knew what he was doing. That's what I guess is the key thing here. Right. And it's it's footage that Wood shot of him. It's not footage that Lugosi shot for someone else. It's hard to make an argument about like, oh, Wood was doing something wrong, exploiting this footage when like, well, for one. Because it's Wood's footage, like either he was going to put that footage in a movie or it was just never going to be seen. Yeah. So he's not like reappropriating something. Two, the ineptitude by which he has to like logic in order to like get this footage to make sense with this movie. It makes it hard to feel like this is the act of like a calculating... (laughs) <laughs> evil mastermind when it's like yeah oh yeah I have to insert a plot point about how Paula doesn't lock her side door so that I can use this footage of Lugosi going in and out of someone's side door at night you know yeah. he's using he's wanting to use every single inch of the footage he shot with Lagosi so he's having to like concoct a story that like will let him do that And then the third thing is plan nine didn't make any fucking money. (laughs) So like, it's, it's hard to be like, Oh, like you, you really like exploited Legosi and his legacy, like unfairly by like not making any money. Like, like fucking Ed Wood died like homeless and like on someone's couch. Like, so it's, it's really hard to think of like, Oh yeah, he really exploited the shit out of like Legosi, you know?
1: The reason why it's a complicated yes for me is like absolutely all the reasons you've pointed out. And I think if Lugosi, if he did feel manipulated or exploited or anything, like I think he knew what he was doing, as Mm -hmm. you said. Mm -hmm. And he's been in show business for so long, like he understands. And they definitely, Lugosi and Wood had a friendship, even if at minimum it was a colleague like friend at work friendship i think sure. it was more than that i think they had like a legitimate friendship um but the reason why it's still like on the yes side is because wood leveraged Likosi's name so much um in a way that just reminds me of when Likosi's name was kind of used in his post dracula years oh yeah for people to be like starring dracula but he's like a butler that who appears for two minutes.
0: Yeah, very true. Like, Wood is using Lugosi here the same way Lugosi was used his entire career.
1: And so I think that's a real pity. On the flip side, and this is why I also kept thinking of Game of Death is if Wood had tried to have a Lugosi stand-in in in order to make him the main character, Mm. that would have felt way worse.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's creating a story around the Lugosi footage he has, but he hasn't made Lugosi, like, the lead villain. Mm -hmm. You know, he knows that he has to have a very minimal presence in the movie. Like... I, I'm, I'm convinced that like the fact that the Legosi footage is silent is why the zombies don't talk. I mean, we've, we've not really had talking zombies in movies in general, but like the story would be different if he had footage of Legosi speaking, right? He would have arranged things differently. I think it's a very fair point about the way that he, the crassness of using Legosi as leverage. The flip side of that is that he gave like Legosi his last real good role in Bride of the Monster.
1: Yes, that is absolutely true.
0: Right? Like when he had a live Legosi <laughs> to use, he used him well, you know, and gave him stuff to do and gave him lines and a character mm-hmm. and an arc, which is like more than fucking, you know, Reginald LeBorg did when it came time to like do the black sleep.
1: I think that's why I believe that they had an actual friendship more than just, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, there was definitely like a feeling of respect.
0: Yeah. I think the big contradiction of Ed Wood that continues into his career as he moved into like weird softcore porn flicks in like the 70s and shit is that Wood's ambition always exceeded his ability. And that resulted in an obvious ineptitude that meant that for him to get things made he always kind of had to be a little underhanded because no one was going to like legitimately let him do things Mm -hmm. right and so there's a certain element where like edward was a very genuine enthusiastic person who didn't necessarily like bat an eyelash about having to be a little shady to get things done Mm -hmm. and i think in his mind it was like i have footage of bella lugosi like it would be stupid to not use this
1: Mm -hmm. yeah um well let's move on to ranking and see where this plan nine from outer space falls amongst other horror movies
0: yeah we're agreeing that it's enough horror to go on the list absolutely okay So this is widely considered the worst film ever made. I disagree, but, you know, we're doing a ranking podcast. So there's still a chance it could be the worst horror movie ever made, Mm -hmm. which is a smaller category. So I guess we're going to find out. uh, (laughs) So where were you looking, Sarah?
1: Well, I'm proud to say not to the bottom of the list. Okay. Um, I started by looking at Bride of the Monster it's ranked at number 135. And I feel like Bride of the Monster is better. Yeah. I feel like that's a pretty easy call. So then I started looking down. And and below Bride of the Monster, there are some wild things like <laughs> Devil Bat, uh-huh.
0: <laughs>
1: The Unknown, um, even the beast with the million eyes, like all of those are right underneath. And I started looking down and stopped at the face of marble at 141 and that movie is bonkers yeah plan nine from outer space isn't that bonkers
0: fair maybe
1: because when i'm watching face of marble i can't tell where things are going with plan nine from outer space at least scene to scene i understand the logic between them
0: fair i do One of my difficulties in trying to find my range with ranking uh, this time was like the fact that I'm so familiar with Plan 9 from Outer Space. It's like, is it that the movie isn't that bad or is it that I've just gotten like so familiar to its particular brand of lunacy that it doesn't feel as crazy (laughs) as Face of Marble, which was a movie I'd never like heard of before we watched it. And it was like, there's a zombie ghost vampire dog in this movie. And it was like, what? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, I've only seen Plan 9 twice now, so keep that in mind. So my range is 135 to 141. Okay. And I have a pretty good idea where in here to put it, but I want to hear your range.
0: My range is lower than yours. Um, It's not that much lower. Um, Like you, I started with Bride of the Monster, and like you concluded that that movie is better, which I think is a very easy conclusion to come to. Um, like a lot of So Bad It's Good movies, one of the difficulties in ranking Plan 9 is, like, balancing how inept it is with how fun it is to watch. And I think, you know, we brought that up at the start of the episode, that, like, what makes Plan 9 endure among other bad movies is that it is fun to watch in a way that, like, some bad movies are just a fucking slog, yeah. right? You know, the thing that makes Plan Nine fun is like it's the ineptitude plus the ambition
1: and the earnestness
0: and the earnestness and like then the weirdness of like edward's particular t- like habits and ticks, right? And that is really easy to contrast against like bad movies that were made by people who didn't care for a quick buck. But looking below by the Monster, yeah, like, Devil Bat is fun as hell, you know? Um, I was trying to find, like, a spot in the list where, where do the movies stop working, right? Like, where the horror doesn't work, or the story doesn't make sense, or, like, the ineptitude is just too much to ignore. Like, where do the movies stop working as movies? And I noticed Pharaoh's Curse at 145, which I think... Is a better horror movie than Plan 9 from Outer Space, in the sense that like it it knows what it is. Like it's a Pharaoh, it's a mummy movie. Like yeah. y- you don't find out halfway through that it's also about werewolves or something, right? <laughs> and like it's all very focused. Like Pharaoh's Curse, Pharaoh's Curse's story doesn't make sense either, but at least it's like focused on one thing. And I think the spooks in Pharaoh's Curse have a potential to actually scare an audience much more than like anything in plan nine does because even the most effective horror imagery in plan nine is undercut by the fact that by the time you get to it, you're probably still finishing laughing at like whatever the last thing you saw or heard was right. Yeah. Below Pharaoh's curse is the Neanderthal man, which is a movie that has some very effective elements of horror in it, but is also really crappy And so I made this my ceiling. I said, Plan 9 doesn't work as well as Pharaoh's Curse, but maybe it works better than Neanderthal Man because at least Plan 9 is fun. Yeah. And Neanderthal Man isn't. I kept looking down from there where we see other like flawed movies with potential like Voodoo Island and The Mummy's Hand or we see like good movies that just aren't quite real horror like the golem uh or or movies that have like interesting elements to them like song at midnight um and what i was looking for was like okay but where do the movies actually get like bad though like to the point where it's like no this is not watchable yeah because plan nine is at least watchable i was gonna stop at sex maniac 168 because i was like "Mm, plan nine's got to be better than sex maniac but then i noticed that we ranked scared to death below that and it's like scared to death is very plan nine ish in the way that like it is fun but it is nonsense and scared to death actually has like you know like 90 percent more bella lugosi content a few spots below scared to death however is misa of lost women and boy if there's a movie that like deserves to take plan nine's place as actually the worst like 1950s you know, genre picture, it should be Misa of Lost Women. That is a broken movie. Yeah. So I made that my floor. So my range is 146 to 174.
1: That is a very large range, Ben.
0: Well, let's take a look between yours and mine because that's a very short range. That's 141 to 145, uh, The Face of Marble to The Pharaoh's Curse.
1: So I think Jungle Woman, um, With Paula Dupree going through the water, having a little bit of a proto-Black Lagoon situation, um, I feel like you could put Jungle Woman above Plan 9. I honestly kind of feel most comfortable with having it go above Neanderthal Man but below Pharaoh's Curse, kind of with the reasons you outlined when you first described the beginning of your range um the fact that pharaoh's curse is very focused plan nine is not Mm -hmm. um neanderthal man is not very fun to watch and while it uh has horrifying moments um movies
0: are supposed to be entertaining
1: exactly exactly and i get that from plan nine so that's that's where i'm kind of feeling okay
0: i'm good with that okay all right well then entering the list at the new number 146 above The Neanderthal Man, but below Pharaoh's Curse, is Plan 9 from Outer Space from 1957, directed by Ed Wood. And so that's 146 out of 190. So it's only the, like, 45th worst horror movie of all time.
1: (laughs) At least up to 1957. That's right. Uh, If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There, you can find links to our other episodes that we've discussed today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, really give us a strong sell for why Plan 9 from Outer Space should go at the bottom of the list, Uh, you can drop us a line through our Ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore screamscene.
0: But listen, if you're going to say that Plan 9 needs to be at the bottom of the list, you need to have watched Son of Engagi. You need to have watched Son of Engagi all the way through and then with a straight face tell me that Plan 9 is a worse movie. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts by subscribing to our RSS feed. If you'd like to help the show out, you can leave us a rating or a review, you can share the show online, or you can tell a friend about it. If you like what we do and want us to keep doing it till we get to Birdemic, um, then (laughs) head on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast. Your monthly support helps us pay show hosting fees, helps us find the time to do... All the research and recording that uh, the show entails and also at higher levels goes towards supporting bonus efforts like the editing of uh, bonus audio from past episodes, which comes out weekly for our $5 and up patrons. Or our special like writing projects and um, other efforts like that for ten dollar nut patrons. Sarah currently is doing a writing series on the gothic literature that she like grew up with that has led her to love gothic fiction. I think there's a new piece coming soon.
1: Yes, on the Castle of Otranto, the very first gothic novel.
0: So if any of that sounds interesting to you head on over to patreon.com slash podcast you can sign up for as little as a dollar a month but if you want those bonuses check out the five or ten dollar levels
1: so ben what are we watching next week
0: next week sarah we're watching a movie that i know nothing about other than its title
1: uh i guess it's good that we have patrons helping support uh, our research efforts
0: yes it is zombies of mora tau okay Presumably it's about zombies.
1: Of Mora, Mora Tau? Tau, Okay.
0: Which I think is a place name, but I don't know.
1: Well, we will see you next week from Morotau, Tau, uh, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye.